would invite you to turn in your Bibles this morning to the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 46. If you don't have a Bible, there's a Bible underneath the seat in front of you. Grab one and follow along with us. The first book of the Bible, if you're new to Christianity, those big numbers in the Scripture are called chapters, and those smaller numbers are called verses. Those are not inspired Scripture. They're just things that transcribers of the Scripture have made easier for us to follow. So turn to the book of Genesis chapter 46. Friends, this is sermon number 25 of 26 in the book of Genesis. So we are rounding third. We are headed for home, and we will reach home plate, Lord willing, next week. For the last four weeks, we've been studying together the story of Joseph. He's the second youngest son of Jacob, whom God led through excruciating suffering and humiliation, and then exalted to the second highest place in Egypt in order that Joseph might become God's agent of salvation for the world. Of course, Joseph's management plan for the seven years of plenty and then the seven years of famine saved the lives of the Egyptians and certainly, more importantly, saved the lives of his people, his family. In reality, God's providence led Joseph to save the very ones who had betrayed him in the first place. Last week, we observed the repentance and transformation of Joseph's brothers that then really put the ball on the tee, didn't it? for their reconciliation with Joseph. And we saw Joseph's willingness to, to grant this full and free forgiveness to his brothers since he understood God's sovereignty in it all. And this week, we see the final act in the story. It's Jacob's migration along with his family down to Egypt. And the next week, we're going to wrap up the book of Genesis by looking at the epilogue of the story. Now, I don't know about you, but it struck me as, we, as, as we've been going through Genesis and, and particularly as we've been in these last 14 chapters, you think about it, the first 36 chapters of the book of Genesis cover millennia of time. And the last 14 chapters really are largely about 22 years in the history of the world. You ever notice that? Why did Moses slow down to study the life of Joseph so particularly? Well, I think there are three reasons. First of all, remember that Genesis is the first book of the Torah or the Pentateuch, the first five books of the scripture. They're really one covenant package. And so Genesis sets for us the foundation of our understanding of the rest of the Torah and the rest of the Bible. So back in Genesis chapter 15, God had told Abraham that his descendants would be sojourners in a land that was not theirs for 400 years and that they would be servants in that land until the iniquity of the Amorites, the people of the land of Canaan, was complete. And so this, this last section of Genesis shows how that came to be, right? It, it shows how God's people got to Egypt, the land that was not theirs. So really, in many ways, these last 14 chapters of Genesis are a bridge between the patriarchs in Genesis and the Exodus and the rest of Israel's story. But if you lift your eyes higher to scan the past horizon of redemptive history, you'll understand that these last 14 chapters really show how God continues to fulfill his great promises that he had made to Abraham, to make Abraham's offspring into a great nation and then through them to bless the nations of the world. These, these 
chapters really show us how God's promises to Abraham of land and seed and blessing began to be fulfilled in Egypt through Joseph. Perhaps the more obvious reason, though, I think that Moses takes so much time to tell this story is that we really can't understand the beautiful workings of God's providence that we see in this story without looking at it in detail. It's a beautiful story of God's sovereign grace, and today it begins to head toward its conclusion. So let's read together. We're going to start back up in chapter 45, verse 25, and we're going to read the better part of, of chapters 45 or excuse me, chapters 46 and 47 this morning. But let's start in 45, 25. So the brothers went up out of Egypt and came to the land of Canaan to their father, Jacob. And they told him, Joseph is still alive and he is ruler over all the land of Egypt. And his heart became numb for he did not believe them. But when they told him all the words of Joseph, which he had said to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father, Jacob, revived. And Israel said, it is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. So Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father, Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am. Then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again. And Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. Then Jacob set out from Beersheba. The sons of Israel carried Jacob, their father, their little ones, and their wives, and the wagons that Pharaoh had, had sent to carry him. They also took their livestock and their goods, which they had gained in the land of Canaan, and came to Egypt, Jacob and all his offspring with him his sons and his sons' sons with him, his daughters and his sons' daughters, all his offspring he brought with him into Egypt. Now, we're going to stop there for a second. Verses 8 to 25 aren't unimportant, but we're not going to read this genealogy in detail this morning for sake of time. But it's the full list of Jacob's descendants, his children and his grandchildren grouped together by whom their mother was. So, so Jacob's children by Leah, Zilpah, Bilhah, and Rachel. Now skip down to verse 26, 46, 26. All the persons belonging to Jacob who came into Egypt, who were his own descendants, not including Jacob's son's wives, were 66 persons in all. And the sons of Joseph who were born to him in Egypt were two. All the persons of the house of Jacob who came into Egypt were 70. He had sent Judah ahead of him to Joseph to show the way before him into Goshen, and they came into the land of Goshen. Then Joseph prepared his chariot and went up to meet Israel, his father, in Goshen. He presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. Israel said to Joseph, now let me die, since I have seen your face and know that you are still alive. Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh and will say to him, my brothers and my father's household who were in the land of Canaan have come to me. And the men are shepherds, for they have been keepers of livestock, and they have brought their flocks and their herds and all that they have. When Pharaoh calls you and says, what is your occupation? You shall say your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth even until now, both we and our fathers, in order that you may dwell in the land of Goshen, for every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. So Joseph went in and told Pharaoh, my father and my brothers with their flocks and herds and all that they possess have come into the land of Canaan. They are now in the land of Goshen. 
And from among his brothers, he took five men and presented them to Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to his brothers, what is your occupation? And he said to Pharaoh, your servants are shepherds as our fathers were. They said to Pharaoh, we have come to sojourn in the land for there is no pasture for your servants' flocks for the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. And now please let your servants dwell in the land of Goshen. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land. Let them settle in the land of Goshen. And if you know any able men among them, put them in charge of my livestock. Then Joseph brought in Jacob, his father, and stood him before Pharaoh. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Jacob, how many are the days of the years of your life? And Jacob said to Pharaoh, the days of the years of my sojourning are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life. And they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers and the days of their sojourning. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from the presence of Pharaoh. Then Joseph settled his father and his brothers and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt and the best of the land and the land of Ramses, as Pharaoh had commanded. And Joseph provided his fathers, his brothers, and all his father's household with food according to the number of their, de their dependents. Now there was no food in all the land, for the famine was very severe, so that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished by reason of the famine. And Joseph gathered up all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan in exchange for the grain that they bought. And Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house. And when the money was spent in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, give us food. Why should we die before your eyes? For our money is gone. And Joseph answered, give your livestock and I will give you food in exchange for your livestock if your money is gone. So they brought their livestock to Joseph and Joseph gave them food in exchange for the horses, the flocks, the herds and the donkeys. He supplied them with food in exchange for all their livestock that year. And when the year was ended, they came to him the following year and said to him, we will not hide from my Lord that our money is all spent. The herds of livestock are my Lord's. There's nothing left in the sight of my Lord, but our bodies and our land. Why should we die before your eyes, both we and our land, by us, by us and our land for food? And we with our land will be servants to Pharaoh and give us seed that we may live and not die and that the land may not be desolate. So Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh, for all the Egyptians sold their fields because the famine was severe on them. The land became Pharaoh's. As for the people, he made servants of them from one end of Egypt to the other. Only the land of the priests he did not buy, for the priests had a fixed allowance from Pharaoh and lived on the allowance that Pharaoh gave them. Therefore, they did not sell their land. Then Joseph said to the people, Behold, I have this day bought you and your land for Pharaoh. Now here is seed for you, and you shall sow the land. And at the harvest you shall give a fifth to Pharaoh, and four fifths shall be your own, as seed for the uh, excuse me, as seed for the field, and as food for yourselves and your household, and as food for your little ones. And they said, You have saved our lives. May it please my Lord, we will be servants to Pharaoh. So Joseph made it a statue according to statute according to the land of Egypt, and it stands to this day that Pharaoh should have the fifth. The land of the priests alone did not become Pharaoh's. Thus Israel settled in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen, and they gained possession in it and were fruitful and multiplied greatly. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. So the days of Jacob, the years of his life, were 147 years. And when the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, If now I have found favor in your sight, put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal kindly and truly with me. Do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. Carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burying place. 
He answered, I will do as you have said. And he said, swear to me. And he swore to him. Then Israel bowed himself upon the head of his bed. This is the word of the Lord. Last weekend, I, uh, I took my kids to see Space Jam 2. And on the way, I did a, a crucial bit of discipleship with my kids that no matter how much they like what they see in Space Jam 2, they're never to forget that LeBron James will never, ever be as good as Michael Jordan. That LeBron is not worthy to lace up MJ's sneakers. And Hadley, my oldest, asked me, Dad, why are you so serious about this? I said, because it's a really, really important thing to know for your life, sweetheart. Now, both Space Jam movies are, are built on the premise that the Looney Tune characters, who for the most part have no basketball talent, must face another team that j- should wipe the floor with them, right? So the Monstars should have, by every logical conclusion, annihilated the Toon Squad. After all, they had, they had stolen the talent of NBA superstars along with Sean Bradley, right? They, they had everything. They had the height. They had the speed. They had the skill. And the Toon Squad had nothing. And yet, the Toon Squad had one major thing going for them. They had Michael Jordan, undeniably the greatest basketball player of all time. Now, friends, pardon me, but I could not help but think of the outmatched, unimpressive Toon Squad when considering our passage today in Genesis 46 and 47. Because here's the ragtag family of Jacob, the embryonic nation of Israel, only 70 descendants in all, leaving behind Canaan to live in Egypt, the world's superpower of the day. Here's decrepit old Jacob blessing the king of the superpower of the day, right? And then there's Pharaoh himself granting this family of shepherds the best land that Egypt has to offer. There's this once enslaved and imprisoned Hebrew, now governor of the land, whom God is using to save Egyptian life and to preserve his family's life. So from a human standpoint, this story defies our expectations. And yet, like MJ with the Toon Squad, Jacob's family has one thing going for it. They carry the promises of Yahweh, the creator of the world and the redeemer of his people, And it just so happens that he promised to go to Egypt with them. I think the main idea of this, these two chapters, which is the main idea of our sermon today is this. God will surely bring the world his salvation, but he will do it in unexpected ways and through unimpressive people. Oh yes, the Lord will surely bring his world, the world, his salvation, but he will do it in unexpected ways and through unimpressive people. Three points this morning. Number one, surprising promises and a new humanity. We see that in the bulk of chapter 46. Number two, lavish provision and an ironic blessing. We see that in the rest of chapter 46 and into chapter 47. Number three, gracious preservation and an enduring hope. You may say, well, John, that sounds like six points squeezed into three points, and you would be exactly right. Figured you could handle three points better than six points. Surprising promises and a new humanity, lavish provision and an ironic blessing and gracious 
preservation, and an enduring hope. Let's look at number one, these surprising promises in the new humanity. Chapter 46 opens with Jacob responding to Joseph and Pharaoh's invitation to come to Egypt to escape the famine. Now, at first glance, this, this decision seems like a no-brainer, right? Okay, this morning's discipleship class, we're going through decision-making. Okay, surely Jacob didn't have to sweat this decision. Egypt was, was where the food was, and more importantly, it was where Joseph was. For 22 years, this man had grieved the loss of his son and wondered what in the world became of him. And now he's alive and he's exalted to authority in Egypt. From a human standpoint, Jacob had every reason to go to Egypt. But friend, this was no light thing at this point in Jacob's life to leave Canaan. He was no spring chicken. He was nearing the end of his life. And he recognized that if he left the promised land, he might never return. Jacob knew the massive implications for abandoning the land of promise. Think about it. Already once in his life, he had been exiled outside the promised land up in the Northeast in Padan Aram. He was exiled for decades. Beyond that, Jacob knew the stories of his fathers, right? He knew that his grandfather Abraham and his, had really, in a sense, committed great foolishness in leaving Canaan for Egypt during the middle of a famine. He would have surely known that the Lord in chapter 26 of Genesis told his father Isaac, don't leave the promised land for Egypt in the middle of the famine in Isaac's life. Perhaps Jacob even had in mind that the promise that we already mentioned from God to Abraham in chapter 15, that, that Abraham's children would be sojourners in a land not theirs and be servants there and afflicted for 400 years. Perhaps there was some question in Jacob's mind, is that happening even right now? When will my family return to the promised land? And so Jacob stopped the train before it left Canaan. He parked at Beersheba at the southern tip of Canaan, according to verse one, to worship and seek the Lord. Now, Beersheba is a location that is just freighted with significance for Jacob and his family. Just think about this. It was at Beersheba, according to Genesis 21, that Abraham had made a treaty with Abimelech and then there called upon the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. It was at Beersheba, according to Genesis 26, that God appeared to Isaac and promised to bless him and to multiply his offspring to fulfill the Abrahamic promise. And there Isaac built an altar and called upon the name of the Lord. Jacob himself grew up at Beersheba. It was there that he tricked Esau out of his birthright and swindled him out of Isaac's blessing. Perhaps even as he stopped at Beersheba, the, the memories of his past sin of his youth flooded his mind. I think that it's possible that Jacob may have even refurbished the altar that Isaac had built when he worshiped at Beersheba. Because look at verse one, it says that he offered sacrifices to the God of his father. This is a man of faith. This is a man clinging to the God's promises, even as he prepares to leave the land of promise. I think, friends, surely apprehension filled Jacob's heart. Was he making the right decision? Would he ever return? What will happen to his family in Egypt? Will God make good on his word and give his family the land, even though they're leaving it? All of that is the backdrop for God's appearance to Jacob in the night in verse 2. 
Look at verse two. God reintroduces himself to Jacob as the sovereign covenant Lord, the God of his father. Then listen to the next words out of the Lord's mouth. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt. Okay, easier said than done, Lord, right? Don't you know how scary this is? Don't you know how old I am? Don't you know that you've taken me through so much in my life and now you want me to leave the land? Don't be afraid. The Lord then gives three promises to back his command. First, he says, for there, for in Egypt, I will make you a great nation. The Lord had promised Jacob, of course, in the past at Bethel that his offspring would be like the dust of the earth. But this great nation specifically is explicit language from the Abrahamic promise, right? That God had made to Abraham in chapters 12, 15, and 17. God is now ready to fulfill his word through Jacob's family. But the way that he's going to fulfill his word is entirely unexpected. Don't you think that the patriarchs would have expected for God to make them a great nation in the land that he had promised them. But now God flip-flops that expectation and says, no, I'm going to make you a great nation in Egypt. It was outside the land that, that God gave Jacob a family in the first place, and now it will be in Egypt, outside the land, that that family will grow into a nation. Well, how will Jacob know that God will fulfill his word? Look no further than the second and the third reasons that Jacob should not be afraid. Verse four, I myself will go down with you to Egypt and I will bring you back up again. Friends, this is the great promise rehearsed from Bethel, isn't it? At the beginning of Jacob's journey up to Padan Aram. It's the great promise that sustained him during his exile with his sweet uncle Laban, right? From start to finish, the Lord has been with this man. What will settle his heart now in his old age, now that it's time to leave the land once again? Friend, the only thing that can truly assuage the fears in Jacob's heart, the only thing that will assuage your fears and my fears is the promise of the enduring presence of a sovereign covenant Lord. That the creator of the heavens and earth will not leave us nor forsake us. That in the very moments that it feels like God is most distant, in our most terrifying moments, when we have no grasp of what the future may hold, and when it seems like death is opening up its jaws to swallow us in, when we cry into the night feeling like no one hears us, back comes the echo of the song of the covenant. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you walk through the, through the rivers, they will not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned and the flame shall not consume you. Fear not, I am with you. Friends, there are times in the book of Genesis that I, I felt like I'm preaching a broken record. Not because I stutter, because of the themes that are repeated again and again and again in this in this book, and one of them is God's presence with his people. How many times have we seen this? But the reason we've seen this so many times is because it is God's presence that assures us that he will keep his promises. God's presence assures his promises. And just like Judah 
in the chapters before this, pledged himself for Benjamin's safety to his, to his father. It's now as if the Lord is pledging himself for Jacob's safety, right? I'm going with you. I will bring you back. Think of the confidence that these promises must have given the nation of Israel, who most likely received Genesis for the first time as they waited to go into the promised land after their wilderness wandering. Think about it. They had just come out of, of great suffering for 400 years in Egypt at the hands of their Egyptian taskmasters. And when they read these, these promises to Jacob, they knew that wasn't random, was it? The Israelites were eventually enslaved and they were forced to drown their baby boys in the River Nile. But even that horror did not mean that they had somehow fell out of God's promises. No, it was God who had brought them down to Egypt and it was God who promised to be with them the entire time during their suffering. And it's God who promised to bring them home. Their past was in his hands and now their future would be firmly in God's hands. Friends, hasn't God in many ways fulfilled his promises to us, his new covenant people, in equally unexpected ways? Through the birth of a baby in a stable who is Emmanuel, God with us. Through a suffering king who was cursed on behalf of his people through a kingdom that did not come in fullness at Jesus' first coming, so that now we live in this age of sin and death as the new people of God, expectantly awaiting the second coming when he will make all things right. Even now, God is growing his new covenant people in a foreign land, as it were, until the day when he brings us home to the promised land, the new heavens and the new earth. Listen to the words of the Apostle Paul. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. Oh, friends, what a paradox that God's presence and his power isn't known primarily through a life of ease or an existence of earthly comfort, but in suffering and in hardship, because that's the way of Jesus. That's the way of death and resurrection. That's the cross and then the crown, because it's there that we find out that our perplexing circumstances don't drive us to despair, and our persecution doesn't leave us abandoned by God, because he's with us to the end. Until the day that we cross Jordan's stormy banks and we walk into the land flowing with milk and honey, he will be with us. And then we will see his face and be with him for all of eternity. Friend, whatever fear may grip your heart this morning, listen to the words of your promise-keeping Lord. Don't be afraid. I am going down with you, and I will bring you home. So armed with the Lord's promise and his purpose, Jacob sets out from Beersheba. And certainly, I think the, the emphasis of verse 5 to 7 is that Jacob took with him all his offspring. You see that? There's no Israelite left behind, right? There's no one manning the fort back in Canaan. They're all vacating to Egypt. And so to underline this point, Moses lists all the immigrants. He, he lists all of Jacob's direct descendants who went down to Egypt. Now, let me just highlight a couple things with you from this genealogical list. 
Remember that the Joseph story is in many ways a story of how God preserves the promised seed from whom the Messiah would come. So there in verse 12, we see who should come down to Egypt with Judah, but his son by scandal, Perez, and Perez's sons, Hezron and Homul. And remember that Judah and Perez and Hezron all become ancestors of who? Of both King David and King Jesus. The seed is being preserved. Second, notice Moses' emphasis on the number 70, okay? After listing Jacob's descendants organized around each of his wives and handmaids, he gives the total number of descendants in verse 27. All the persons of the house of Jacob were 70. Now, I'm sure none of you have Genesis 46, 27 as your life verse, but maybe you should because what I'm about to say is pretty awesome. Let me show you why. Let's do the math. Verse 15, these are the sons of Leah, whom she bore to Jacob and put on Aram together with his daughter Dinah, altogether his sons and daughters numbered 33. Verse 18, now these are the sons of Zilpah, whom Laban gave to, his Leah, to Leah's daughter, and these she bore to Jacob, 16 persons. So 33, 16. Verse 22, these are the sons of Rachel who were born to Jacob, 14 persons in all. And then finally, in verse 25, these are the sons of Bilhah, whom Laban gave to Rachel, his daughter, and these she bore to Jacob, seven persons in all. 33 plus 16 plus 14 plus 7 equals 70. And you're probably thinking, well, what's the big deal? Well, look at verse 26. All the persons belonging to Jacob who came into Egypt, who were, who were his own descendants, not including Jacob's son's wives, were 66 persons in all. So the total number was 70, but 66 was the number who came down. Now, why the discrepancy? Well, in the list of descendants are Judah's sons, Ur and Onan, whom the Lord killed because of their wickedness. So that takes the number down to 68. And then Joseph's sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, didn't come down to Egypt, but were born there. So that's 66, okay? So how do we then get back up to 70? Well, that question has perplexed scholars for centuries, actually. If you add back in Manasseh and Ephraim, that's 68. If you add in Jacob, that's 69. And if you count Dinah or perhaps Joseph again, that's 70. Clear as mud. Well, clearly from Moses, what is vital to understand is not how he got from 66 to 70, but his insistence on the number 70 rather than the number 66. Now, why? Is this like his version of the Da Vinci Code? Okay, some numerology, you know, magic? No, nothing like that. But it does appear that the number 70 is especially significant. It's a number that appears again and again and again in the Bible. It's already appeared in Genesis. Do you remember where it appeared in Genesis? In Genesis 10. Genesis 10, in the table of nations. How many nations were recorded in Genesis, that, in Genesis 10 that were dispersed across the face of the earth after the Tower of Babel? 70 nations. These 70 nations represented all of humanity who stood in need of salvation. And so we understand what the Lord was getting at when he told Abraham, in you, all the nations represented by the 70 nations, all the nations will be blessed through your offspring. Salvation for the nations will come through Abraham's son. 
And so friends, as Jacob's family now migrates to Egypt, Moses insists that there are 70 descendants. Why? Why? He's making a theological point. We are to understand these sons of Abraham, this family of Jacob, this comparatively small, insignificant family to be the new humanity that will reclaim the nations for the glory of God. It's through Israel that God will bless the nations of the world. Friends, look at what God is doing. He sent Joseph ahead to preserve the line of promise from certain death so that the line of promise might bless the nations. Ultimately, so that Jesus Christ, the offspring of Abraham, might live and die and rise again and bring blessing to the nations, to draw all nations to himself, so that people from every tribe and tongue and nations might gather as the new humanity around the throne, and they might thunder down the halls of heaven, worthy is the lamb who was slain, to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and strength. Brothers and sisters, you want to know what God is doing in this world? You want to know where everything is heading? Revelation 5, 9 through 11 is what he's doing, and that is where it's going. Fox News and CNN cannot tell you this story. The Bible does, and the Bible will. All of history is oriented around the new humanity of God being called out from every nation through the word of his gospel. And if this is the ultimate reality, then surely we should orient our lives around that. Number two, number two, we see God's lavish provision and an ironic blessing. In verses 28 to 30, Jacob and Joseph are reunited in an emotional reunion. And then the rest of the verses in chapter 46 really show us Joseph's shrewd strategy to make sure that his family received the land of Goshen to live in. Now, why was that so important? Well, according to chapter 47, verse 6, Goshen was the best land that Egypt had to offer. It was fertile land, perhaps even to some degree during the drought. But beyond that, Goshen was along the northeast border of Egypt. It was removed from the cultural center of the land. So it seems that, that Joseph was concerned that his family be separated from some degree from the center of Egyptian life, to be spiritually insulated from their false worship and their false practices. And sure enough, when Israel emerged from Egypt 430 years later, their cultural and spiritual identity had been preserved. They still broke, spoke Hebrew, not Egyptian, and they still worshiped Yahweh, not Ra or Osiris or the Pharaoh himself. According to chapter 46, verse 34, the Egyptians hated shepherds. And so Joseph uses that to their advantage, doesn't he? He says, tell Pharaoh your shepherds. He was hoping that Pharaoh would then kind of quarantine them off up in the northeast part of Egypt and Goshen. And according to the first few verses of chapter 47, that's exactly what happened. Not only did Pharaoh give Jacob's family the best of the land, he put them in charge of his royal herd of livestock. Friends, look what God is doing. Here his people are in a foreign land where Yahweh is not worshiped, in a place where shepherds are despised, and yet he moves Pharaoh's heart to give these very shepherds the choicest of the land. 
And in doing so, God is providing for and protecting his people. It's amazing. There are, you know, I think all types of applications that could be made here. Time doesn't allow us this morning. Perhaps this afternoon, it would be worth your time of reflection a little bit to think about how the Lord has provided for you in a foreign land, as it were. Even though Egypt wasn't their final destination, the Lord promised to provide for his people and did until they made it back to the promised land. Well, I think verses 7 to 10 of chapter 47 are four of the most interesting verses in the entire Bible. They tell of the time when Jacob, the patriarch, met Pharaoh. Shockingly, twice it's mentioned that Jacob blessed Pharaoh. Well, how could this be? What did elderly Jacob, the tribal head of Hebrew shepherds, possibly have to offer the king of the world's superpower? Seriously, in verse 8, when, Jake, when Pharaoh asked Jacob how old he was, Jacob didn't give him a simple answer. He diverted attention away from the total amount of his years to the quality of those years. Look at verse 9. Jacob said to Pharaoh, The days of the years of my sojourning are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life, and they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers and the days of their sojourning. Friends, obviously Jacob did not go to PR training, did he? <laughs> what a Debbie Downer. Surely this was not the way to impress the most powerful man on the planet. But friends, I don't think we should see Jacob here so much as a Debbie Downer, but as brutally honest. Because he's right. His sojourn on earth had been hard. Just think about it. He came out of the womb struggling with his brother. He made a mess of his life through his own deceit and then was banished from Canaan and from his family for the better part of three decades. During that time, his uncle tricked him into marrying a woman he didn't love after seven years of working for the daughter that he did love, only to require seven more years for her. Jealousy between Jacob's wives produced a powder keg of conflict as his wives engaged in a birth competition to gain his favor. Even after the Lord brought him back to Canaan, his daughter was raped, his sons became mass murderers, his beloved wife died while giving birth to his youngest son. His sons then sold Joseph into slavery and then lied about it to his face. His son Judah intermarried with the Canaanites and eventually slept with his daughter-in-law. Famine struck the land and Simeon was imprisoned in Egypt. That is a brutal life. Jacob spoke the truth. He's a decrepit man at the end of a painful and broken life while Pharaoh here is the picture of power and majesty. What did Jacob possibly have to offer Pharaoh, the man who had it all? It'd be like my one-year-old Canaan, you know, offering me something that, you know, what does he have? He has nothing that I have not already given him. What does he possibly have that I need? The answer is nothing. Friends, I tell you what Jacob had. He possessed something that no earthly empire could give him. He possessed the promises of God. And he knew the God of the promise. By all appearances, Jacob was the lesser and Pharaoh the far greater. 
of the two nations that they represented, one was an infant nation of 70 and the other the most powerful nation on the planet. But yet Jacob blessed Pharaoh. Friends, do you see the irony? This is why I called it an ironic blessing. Do you see the irony? Hope for the world comes from the broken, fragile Israel, not from dominant, powerful Egypt. Do you see how this works? Even as God's redemptive plan unfolded, he's highlighting the fact that he delights to work through the weak and the unimpressive. Over and over again, we see it. Why? So that he might receive the glory and not us. This has always been his way. It culminated in a Nazarene carpenter dying a shameful death on a Roman cross. It was through the, the scandal and foolishness of the cross that God chose to put his power and wisdom on display by forgiving sinners and ransoming a people for himself. Why? Oh, friend, God chooses the foolish things in the world to shame the wise. And what is weak in the world to shame the strong so that no human being might boast in his presence so that we might find our all in God and in him alone. Friend, the empires of this world, even our beloved United States, if that's where you're from, the empires of this world may look like they have everything to give, but at the end of the day, the kingdoms of man will crumble and every king will bow the knee to one, to the king of kings, and the Lord of Lords. The empires of man are like a mirage in the desert. They promise life, but then they fade away. On the other hand, the kingdom of God may look small and insignificant, but ironically, it's the citizens in the kingdom of God who are promised to inherit the world. Number three, we see gracious preservation and an enduring hope. In verses 13 to 26, we see once again, Joseph is, is God's agent of salvation for Egypt and then as a result for Israel. So Moses, what he's doing here is he's double clicking on the fact that the offspring of Abraham is blessing the nations. Okay, we've seen it a couple times already. This is what's happening. Perhaps as we read earlier, you thought to yourself, man, it seems like what Joseph is doing here is a little harsh, you know, in his, his government program here. But notice that, that it was the people's idea to become servants of Pharaoh. Sometimes Joseph is accused in scholarly circles of somehow being a harsh taskmaster of approving of slavery. But notice what, what's going on here is not the, the man-stealing or the forced labor that we know in kind of the, the modern-day idea of slavery. No, the, the people asked for this to happen. They desperately wanted to stay alive. They needed something of value in food. And they said, the only thing we have to offer is first our livestock. And now we'll offer ourselves. Notice in verse 25, they're not resentful against Joseph, but they thank him. They said, you have saved our lives. May it please my Lord, we will be servants of Pharaoh. Even the tax that Joseph takes off the land that the people work is, is really generous for the standards of the ancient Near East. He took 20% for Pharaoh and the people kept 80%. Okay, not vice versa. So don't get distracted by thinking, uh, I, I think 
Some people have gone off the rails and said, okay, are there implications here from modern economic philosophy in the government? No, I don't think that's the point, okay? The point is that Joseph is the savior of Egypt. That's the redemptive historical point. Now look at the contrast between the Egyptians and the Israelites in verse 27. Thus Israel settled in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen, and they gained possessions in it. Friends, look at that. The Egyptians were forced by the famine to give their possessions and to give themselves to Pharaoh. But here, the Israelites gain possessions in Pharaoh's land. And notice the description. And they were fruitful and multiplied greatly. We know that language. That's Genesis 1. That's the creation mandate. Be fruitful and multiply. It was renewed again after the flood to Noah and then promised to Abraham. Abraham was like going to be a new Adam, that he would be fruitful and multiply. But here at the end of Genesis, friends, it's not a command, is it? It's not even a promise like it was to Abraham. It's a description. It's It's happening. God was making the people fruitful and he was multiplying them even in Egypt. We are meant here, friends, to see God restoring the world to what it was meant to be in the first place. And how is he doing it? He's doing it through his people, Israel. Finally, the final snapshot of these old promises that have new mercy is in verses 29 to 31. Jacob, near death, calls Joseph in and he says this, Do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. Carry me out of Egypt and bury me in, the, in their burying place. Joseph answered, I, I will do as you've said. And Jacob said, Swear to me. And he swore to him. Then Israel bowed himself upon the head of his bed. I love this. Think about the grace of God in Jacob's life. Once a deceiver, now doggedly fixed on, this, on the promised land. Even in his death, he's just fully committed to God's promises, isn't he? God had promised to give his people the land. He had promised to bring Jacob back to the land, and Jacob believed that promise. Friends, Egypt is not his home. He's just a passing through. Friends, Jacob was not seduced by the wealth of Egypt or the plenty of Goshen, his eye was on Canaan's fairer land. His hope in God's promises extended even beyond the grave. So great was his confidence in the promise that he believed even his decayed remains would be raised from the dead in the better country that waited him. Friends, this is what it looks like to walk by faith and not by sight. It's counterintuitive, isn't it? to fix our hearts on what is eternal and what lasts, even when the world around us is so alluring and so intoxicating, to esteem the treasures of Christ to be of superior value to anything that the world has to offer. Friends, Jacob lived in Israel, excuse me, Jacob lived in Egypt, but his heart was in the promised land. Friends, don't be seduced by Egypt. Don't seek your roots down here. God has prepared for you a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells.
sink your roots down there. Friends, the good news about this story is that as great as Joseph was, there is an offspring of Abraham who is infinitely greater. As Christians, we recognize all of these ancient promises to have been gloriously fulfilled in our Lord Jesus Christ. God had sent Joseph ahead to Egypt to save them, to preserve them from starvation, but God sent his very son into this world to rescue us from the penalty of sin and death. Friend, if you're here without Jesus, this is what this story means to us as Christians. This is the ultimate reality that everything is pointing to in the Bible. Friend, only a sinless one could bear the guilt of sinners. And Jesus is that one. Only God could satisfy his just and holy wrath against sin. And Jesus is that one. The only way that God could forgive sinners who deserve his wrath is if the penalty for sin was fully taken by another and Jesus is that one. The only way that we could be justified and, and rescued from death is that is if death were defeated by another and Jesus is that one. You see, these stories in Genesis about God's people, they don't always provide a one-to-one -one comparison with our lives. We're not always making this one-to-one -one comparison between what, what Jacob went through and standing before Pharaoh and what we go through. No, but we get there by seeing the lens of redemptive, the redemptive story that God is writing. This story shows us how badly we need a savior, how much we need reconciliation with a father. And that is only found through the son the Lord Jesus Christ. So friend, this morning, if you'll pivot away from your sin and your self-efforts to atone for your own righteousness, and this morning, cast yourself into the arms of Jesus by faith, you'll find that only He can bring you safely home. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for these stories. We thank you for the fact that more than anything, they shape our hearts and they shape our understanding of our reality to be centered around what you are doing in this world. Father, we thank you that you have promised to bless all the nations through the offspring of Abraham. We thank you for the unexpected ways that you did that and, from the, and for the unattractive people through whom you did that. And ultimately, we see all of this beautifully fulfilled in our Lord Jesus Christ. Ultimately, we are his people. We're followers of the king. We walk according to his cross and we live in light of his resurrection. And so, Lord Jesus, shape our hearts, even from a text like this, with all these seemingly kind of random snapshots of, of Jacob's migration down to Egypt. Shape our hearts even by a word like this this morning that shows us who you are and what you've purposed to do for us. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.